LSU Stanford 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program. This is a show about housing, ideology, and much more. Today in the program, it is a no-holds-barred, knockdown, drag-out fight to the death. It's a debate. I'm joined by Sonia Schraus. She started the San Francisco Bay Area Renters Federation some time ago, leading to the Yimby scene in the Bay Area. And uh, it's a debate that she challenged to say Georgism versus Yimbyism. And do I have to say more? Let's just get into it. So, welcome, Sonia. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah, so this is, uh, it's the debate death match. You, you challenged Georgists to say uh, they're missing, they're missing it, uh, and there needs to be a, uh, a debate uh, between you and them, and I, I accepted. <laughs> so th- that's what we have here today. Heavy responsibility representing all the Georgists. Well, I think we're both kind of uh, propped up on coffee right now and generally not at our best. So we're probably letting down everybody who thinks we should be doing better. Uh, so I think some, some ground rules, or maybe not ground rules as much as kind of where we're coming from. Uh, I am here in the middle of Peninsula, and I generally, my, my, my framework is... Palo Alto has always bothered me, as well as should. It's an atrocity. And my main goal is to change things around here. Uh, and I feel like SF, I don't really care about. It's a Silicon Valley suburb. And, uh, you know, but it does dominate the idea space. Do you feel do you feel it's true that San Francisco is kind of like it, for better or for worse, San Francisco ideas spread to the rest of the housing discourse? Yeah, definitely. And all over the country. Yeah, that's it's everybody in the world needs to know what's going on with all these like squabbles in the middle of SF. I mean, how how do you feel about that? Just being in SF, does that feel good, or would you rather be in a place that isn't in the center of things? Um, where I am, I think it's I think it's bad. I think it's ridiculous. I think it degrades the quality of discourse, you know, nationwide. Um, I mean, the good thing about it, I as, as it turns out, the national media. People all over the country love reading stories about how San Francisco is screwed up. So evidently, I didn't realize this when I got into politics, but that's like a genre. And people yeah. have been loving to read that for, for decades. Well, it flatters everybody, especially it flatters the right wing. It's like, oh, look at this hippie utopia. And they yeah. don't realize that you need to listen to Adam Smith and he has the lesson. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's what they that's what they want to get out of it. That's usually where it goes. I think everybody gets something out of it for sure. But there's really no excuse. Uh, I mean, at least in New York, like when I lived in Philadelphia, I grew up there. The news about New York local politics, the... You know, you might see that covered in Time magazine, and I thought that was so ridiculous. But at least New York is a huge media market. Yeah, um, things come out of it. It produces content. As yeah. A- and, like, some ridiculous out of 25 million people or something live in the New York metro area, um, whereas in the Bay Area, there's 7 million people. And also, I mean, consider where content comes out of. L.A., bigger city, bigger region, it is a cultural center 
And yet, I feel it's downstream of Bay Area politics for housing. It's really oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. But they're they're not as messed up there. You know, I mean, the thing that people love, they love to see these stories. I can remember in the 90s seeing stories about, like, six young professionals each making, you know, some multiple of the median, of the nationwide median income, living together as roommates, like, sharing a bedroom in the Mission District. Like, it's yeah. just so outrageous that people are like, whoo, that's crazy. And, like, they've had this story for a long time. I mean, housing prices in California have always been higher um, a, at least a little bit, and they've been much higher uh, since the 90s and even it, earlier. Yeah. Is this because like SF is more telegenic? You go to the mission, you find people squeezed into a room, as opposed to other kinds of housing misery. You talk about someone commuting three hours a day from Tracy out to Santa Clara. Uh, like It's like you can't make a good news story out of that. It's just depressing. Um, that's a, definitely another genre of news story that people do, you know, people like to to read. I think that, I mean, the price is sort of easier to understand than the commute. Um, I just think there's the invisible poor kind of story and there's the telegenic, you know, what's happening in the center of our cities. But then there's also so much misery on the, on the, on the margins. And I mean, that is really what my kind of thing is not to really, I mean, you talk about San Francisco being so screwed up. It makes me jealous for how functional, vibrant, it's a real place, as opposed to, I mean, I don't know when you came down here, how much of the strip malls of, of Santa Clara County and San Mateo County you see. This is just a, it's a depressing little area. Uh, you know, I just had a thought that I think is a, is a smart thought. Um, <laughs> I think that the preference for the story of paying a lot and still having roommates, paying a lot, um, you know, having a small place to live feeds into an even older, you know, century-long interest or obsession or um, stereotype that Americans have about cities and why cities are bad. Whereas the long commute is a downside of living in the suburbs. And Americans, like, love the suburbs. I thought you were going to say it has to do with adulthood today, because I think it does. You know, what do kids do? They have roommates. You're not really an adult yet. What does a serious person do? You finally grow up. You get the house in the suburbs. And now you're being a real, you know, now you're a full member of society. And what is going on here is, like, a lot of people, if you're in this region, that is not a door open to them. You could drive two hours away. You could abandon the community you grew up in. But uh, there's certainly the old path of, you know, just find your suburban home is it's kind of hit a shelf life. Yeah. I mean, drive till you qualify. A lot of people are still picking that. But. Yeah, it is. I, I just feel like maybe there's, I think, a big difference, like how backwater we are here is that there is suburban cultural supremacy in Santa Clara County. It's supposed to SF. People are like, yeah, you know, want to live in a different way? We actually are for living in a different way. Yeah, relatively, that's definitely true. I talked to somebody, and I wish I remember who it was, but it was, you know, one of these brilliant offhand comments uh, where she referred to San Francisco as the capital of all suburbs. Mm. And that just really hit right. So it is definitely more metropolitan than the rest of the Bay, but there, there's this, there's still some suburban ethos deep in the core of San Francisco. And they're downstream from the Silicon Valley job market. And right. you have the more that they say like, oh, who cares about what's happening south of us? And the jobs are creeping up. And if you're talking about what is the pressure at their neck, it's because San Francisco hasn't really pushed back on Silicon Valley to clean up their mess. 
Yeah, I know. That's why that's why there was this mantra of sue the suburbs, sue the suburbs. Like when I started um, organizing for housing, one thing that everybody agreed on was, you know, whether in San Francisco, of course, we fight about where we should build housing or if we should even build it at all. But every meeting, no matter how um, raucous um, and how much disagreement at the end, like almost like a prayer, like everybody could say like, well, somebody should sue the suburbs, you know, they should be. And when they when they say that, what they mean is the peninsula, Um, which is why I started uh, the nonprofit that I run, because I kind of looked into it and I realized, like, we don't have to wait for someone else to do it. Like local governments can do it. The the city of San Francisco can sue the suburbs uh, to force them to build housing. But so can any California resident. Yeah. And as it turns out, any well, they changed the law and now um, nonprofits organized for this purpose also can. So we did. And that's Carla EF dot org. Or if you just go to sue the suburbs dot org, you can find out more. I, you think this would be the slam dunk for everybody in SF politics, that everybody from the Prague to the mod, whatever that means, would say, oh, yeah, we all agree. Palo Alto is the worst. Let's do action. But you'd be surprised how often the cozy bedfellows are with, with Palo Alto NIMBYs with all this kind of stuff. But let's get back to the Georgism debate. Uh, so right. You, you the say, you the say, listeners want to hear blood. Yeah. And we've, we've got a couple minutes in. We haven't yet got blood. Uh, <laughs> why do Georgists miss, miss the point? I think Georgia's missed the point um, because Georgism was invented before zoning. You know, a lot of Georgists, I think they look around, they see that there's a lot of single family homes in an area where obviously we need apartment buildings. There are these inexplicably empty lots. There are dead malls. And they look at that and they're like, oh, I guess the owners are speculating. You know, I guess they're waiting for something. The owners are just lazy. But that's not it. You know, show me a dead mall and I'll show you a turned down building permit. You know, show me a single family house on a large lot. I'll show you that the law says the zoning says you cannot build it in any other way, even if you want to. And so, I mean, there's I have two levels of disagreement with Georgists. One is in the short term um, that people cannot they are literally it is literally illegal for them to develop their land to the highest and best use. And so if what you want is to let people do that, first, we have to make it legal. Like, forget messing around with taxes to change uh to change the incentives. Um, incentives are neither here nor there. You, The incentives like are to build, right? People want to build an apartment building. They'll make money, but they can't. Well, I, so you are criticizing this hypothetical Georgist who is like, zoning, it doesn't matter. I don't think this person exists. I, I think am, I, I am connected to the Georgist sphere insofar as it exists. And I think everybody looks at like Palo Alto exclusionary zoning and says, yeah, this sucks. You look at Valco's permitting and says, yeah, this sucks. I think there's 100% agreement here that in the short term, zoning is screwed up and it is a more immediate thing that needs to be you know, changed. I don't think that there's really many people who are like, let's do nothing until land value tax. Um, you're right for people who know what zoning is. But I think that <laughs> how many people know about land value tax, but not zoning? You'd be surprised. I would be very surprised. I don't think this person exists. No, definitely they do. Because like I've Georgists, I mean, to their credit, they're very charming. They see me in the news or whatever. And they're like, oh, yeah, 
developing land more densely or like more productively. Like we're into that. Um, but so I've had conversations. So they invite me. Like I, you know, I went to Georgia's had uh, oh, the earth sharing thing back in yeah. 2016. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I mean, I talked to people on Twitter and I, you scratch the surface and like they're so excited about they're like, oh, have you heard about land value tax? Like that's the reform we need. And it's like, you know, scratch the surface and they don't really know anything about zoning. Um, turns out most people don't know anything about zoning. And so that's why it's like I don't really blame people for not knowing. You just have to tell them. But it's not like there was the, the Georgia's thing that I went to in Oakland. Like there wasn't any discussion of zoning. At well, all. you brought the discussion of zoning. It's true. Actually, yeah. I was that person. So, OK, fair enough. Fair enough. Other than me, though, there wasn't anything. Well, Kim I. Cutler ended it and she talked about. <laughs> she did. She did. I guess so. <laughs> fine. Fine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. I'm losing this debate. Yeah. Well, uh, so here is my framing, uh, which I think describes to me what the relationship is with people attacking exclusionary zoning and Georgia's. And I think why it's not wrong to say it is not our fight to look at land value tax today. And I think that's valued for a certain number of people, certainly to say, let's actually deal with stuff. Here is my framing. Uh, back in the in the age of Henry George himself, what was a major uh, what was a major thing that he was also into was reforming tariffs. Hmm. And his his point at the time, he wrote an entire you were like five, six books total. One of them is just about tariffs. Uh, and his point is saying, yeah, we need to reform land, but in the short term, people are being squeezed by the high cost of commodities and incredibly regressive taxes that come in the form of tariffs. Uh, so what we need to do first is tariff reform. This is going to make people, he described his analogy of, let's imagine a person is like bound up uh, and then he's like, you know, He's struggling a lot of ways, but he's tied up with ropes. The tariffs are the rope. You first need to come free, and then he work for himself because he's now not starving to death. Uh, and I think this is—I think this is a good pragmatic fight for the time. He said in the book, after this is done, land reform is still going to be a problem in the long term. But let's do tariff reform now. What happened? We got tariff reform. We never got the land reform. And what happened in the long term? the working class did not really get the long-term reform they needed. Uh, we got, we grew the pie, we got uh, trade internationally, and commodities got really cheap. But is the cost of living cheap? In a lot of ways, it's not. And especially in our cities, housing is still an incredibly high uh, thing that, that costs. And my point is saying for, for zoning reform, same thing. I think zoning reform is the immediate thing that's strangling people commuting from Tracy, but in the long term, it's never going to be enough. And you're still need land reform. You need to make sure that it's the YIMBY direction knows long term, you can't just do zoning reform forever if you want equity. Yeah, you heard it here first, Georgists. You can uh, <laughs> you can take a take a short break from land reform and work on. Well, zoning is a kind of land reform. I mean, so do you think that's true in the long term that any kind of zoning reform needs to have long term equity reform in terms of, of land? Because I think the, the critique of them is saying they are complete, you know, libertarian proper right, property right Rothbardians and they feel just in all restrictions and then we'll have a better world. And I think it's correct to say that's not enough is what I, where I come from. Yeah, I mean, property rights are not a real thing. You know, there's a lot of there are. I mean, just just 
anybody you meet, just like Georgists that have a you know, simple idea and don't know about zoning. I mean, there are definitely people that sort of don't realize that pro- property rights are not real. Like you can't see them under a microscope. You know, they don't exist in the world. Um, there's a claim to property and a community that respects your claim. Yeah. Uh, one thing that's, I guess, sort of correct uh, from our some of our opponent, opponents, you know, is that definitely zoning reform, um, yimbyism, building more. This is totally a fight around property rights, around distributing different kinds of property rights. You know, as it is right now, say you own a single family house in Palo Alto, you don't really have the property right to tear it down and build an apartment building, but you do have a property right about around everybody else in your neighborhood. You know, you can keep your neighbor from tearing something down and, and building uh, an apartment building. So there are sort of these like property rights truthers that only recognize what you can do on, you know, that you can kind of like draw a box on the earth and then be like, I can do anything I want inside of here. And that's property rights. But the ability to keep your neighbor from doing something is somehow not a property right. Like, obviously, it is if your community recognizes it. Um, like either a good thing or bad thing. You get some kind of libertarian types who are like, zoning is a property right, and that's why it's good. Yes. There are repo- – <laughs> this is what the Agenda 21 people, the way they see it, it's so hilarious. So they totally do have that property rights rhetoric. They're like, I have this property right over my neighbor's you know, property. Yeah. And when you are doing zoning reform, you're taking that away from me. And they even I mean, I've been yelled at in the comments section of like some local newspaper um, where this this type of Republican, uh, their framing is that by taking away their right to stop an apartment building, um, millennials or poor people or something are like demanding a subsidy from the public. Mm. Right. That that's that. Yeah, because they're losing a right. And so they see that as being forced to subsidize like a lower income person's ridiculous life choices that led them to having to live in an apartment. I mean, wrap your mind around it. If you feel confused, that's natural. It's completely crazy. Although, like many crazy ideas, has does have some internal consistency. I mean, the point of it is, is that you property rights is a very flexible notion that uh, that you can move around to justify, you know, whatever your idea is. Um, but going forward, and this is actually another interesting place for it is like if you're a renter, you know, if you live somewhere for a long time and you want housing security and like at very least in most places in the U.S., you can at least expect to get 30 days notice before you leave. I mean, that is a very tiny little property right, you know? Yeah, yeah. If you live in a town that's extended it to 60 days or three months, that now your property right is growing a little bit. And uh, that's, and I mean, if you live in a place where you have rent control, that's an even, that's even more of a property right over where uh, you live. Um, and but, we're, yeah, go ahead. And I think this is a way you've like, if you talk about what is kind of like a left-wing kind of way to frame urbanism of saying a right to the city, uh, and there is kind of a question of where do we want to go from here? And one, I think that you get some people who really push back on saying, I am against anything that helps tenants because it is just giving a property right to an incumbent. I want to make sure it's fair for insiders and outsiders. I think this is generally misguided in the short term, at least insofar as 
you're not going to make anything better by by holding back the the basic protections that everyone deserves. But I think it is true. It's a lot of people would say what we need to do is give protections to people already here. Who really cares about who isn't already in the city? Yeah, I mean, it's pessimistic. Like the problem that we have is a lot of people that are locked into a scarcity mode. They don't realize it. You know, so if I if you have somebody that's against uh, rent control and they say and they make that argument, it's because it favors the incumbent over the new person. When they're saying that to you, when they're having that thought, they're also imagining that we can't build more housing. It's embedded right in there. And so if you take for granted that we can't build more housing, then, yeah, like any existing apartment is something that a new person and an old person has to fight over. Uh, But sort of the whole point of Yimbyism is that we shouldn't have to fight over what exists, that we should be able to make a lot more now. But again, like so this is now we get to phase two. Okay, phase one, it's like, all right, fine. You could get everybody to agree that if you live somewhere, you should be entitled to stay there, even if it's if that's sort of radical because it gives uh, tenants, you know, more housing security than some people thought that they should expect that a tenant has. Maybe they can get over that, expand their minds, be like, let's imagine a world where once you live somewhere, you are free to stay there. And this is like class B ownership in a lot of ways. Yeah. You can't sell it for a profit, but yeah, you got you got a claim. You have an option to live there forever. And exactly. that's, that's worth something. Yeah, definitely it's worth something. Um, as a, as a tangent, which I, a road I won't go down, but imagine it. Imagine if you could actually sell your 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 options. Yeah. Right? Because a, a, a rent-controlled lease is you sign the lease for the first year, and then you have an option at the end of the year to sign another lease forever, which is definitely worth something, you know, at a certain rate. Uh, definitely it is worth something. And there are black markets where people sublet for more than they pay. Yes. Uh, and that it's like, let's not pretend this isn't already happening. Yes. Yes, right. So the market does kind of exist, even though it's not supposed to. But it doesn't like fully exist, right? You can't like borrow against it. You yeah. can't sell it. You can't inherit it. Anyway, whatever. That's a tangent. <laughs> you have but, to keep it secret. Yeah. But I think it is interesting uh, to think about. Um, <laughs> so you, okay. I will, let's not go down that path. <laughs> uh, but wait, I was I was actually on my way to saying something else. Do you this, remember what the, it might have been? The long term, you said there was class oh, A and class B. Right. Oh, no, yeah. no. Yeah. So I'm yeah. talking. So what if you, yes. So everybody can get on board. What if you had a right to stay where you are? We still have this secondary question, which is what we were talking about at the beginning. Do you have a right to keep other people from moving to your neighborhood? Do you have a right? Do you have a reasonable expectation that if your neighborhood is like a is a district of low rise garden apartments, that it will be like that forever? And that is something that if you, you know, if you thought people like naturally if you try to remove someone from their home, you would expect them to kick and scream and to fight you on it. And as it turns out, guess what? If you, even if you tell them they can stay in their home, if you try to tell them that they can't expect their neighborhood to continue to look the way it did when they moved in, they will also fight you. And it actually, we like to have this boogeyman that it's just like, uh, like white boomers, you know, that fight you on that. But actually, people are people. You know, if you cut us, do we not bleed? People from all kinds of backgrounds, immigrants, you know, people who have lived here forever, old people, young people, high income, low income, every race and creed, people actually get very, very attached to their neighborhood the way it is. And 
even if you think it's a bad neighborhood, right? Yeah. Like you think the suburbs are horrible and a lot of people think that, but a lot of people think it's the greatest thing ever. The inner cities that for decades people were like, obviously this inner city neighborhood is, is you know, should be bulldozed. Like it's a horrible place. As it turns out, you know, when a neighborhood gentrifies, people come out of the woodwork and they're like, our neighborhood had a bad reputation and people look at it from the outside and say it's bad, but we like it. Well, I think there's two things you have to acknowledge that are driving that. And you could say one might be just simple nostalgia. And I think simple nostalgia is rampant with everybody, no matter who you are. And I think it's almost certainly regressive. But you also say, like, so what do tenants want? They want stability. They want they they want to know that they're you know that in the long term they're not going to get booted. And I think that if you talk about I'm nostalgic, I want nothing to change. I'm not that sympathetic for, for that. But if you say like I want to make sure that in ten years there's still room for me in this area, I think that is much more legitimate. And I think that you have to look at the fact that in the long term we have never made enough room and we've made just enough room to replace the poor with the less poor. And I think it's reasonable to say that is going to continue to happen, which is why that I think this perverse kind of broken way saying, oh, let's not allow any change. This is the only way to protect people in these communities, as opposed to saying there needs to be more radical change that is going to make room for everybody. Yeah. So the question is, I mean, what you're noticing, we have this dream that uh, will be able that you know cities will be able to grow, <laughs> that people um, that the Bay Area could become a place where 25 million people live instead of just seven million or 40 million. Yeah. Um, and that people who already live here can stay here. That people whose kids want to live in the place they grew up could also stay. All right, imagining all that. Um, I think that you're right that generally, like over the last hundred years, we haven't. Um, there aren't a lot of things you can point to where you say that as new people came, the existing people were able to stay. So the question is, what what would change that? Like, is having a Georgist revolution and having a land tax, you know, going to be the thing that changes that? I mean, communists will tell you the only way to do it is that the Karl Marx comes back and um, we have like, you know, the messianic age begins um, for I think for Yimbies, we're like more practical, like what changes that it's not about attaching ourselves to any particular ideology. What changes it is making sure that we organize a lot of people who have that same vision um, and that as decision as specific decisions come up about specific uh, developments and as we pass laws at the city level, at the county level, at the state level, that we are continually making and remaking this world that we want to see. And also just how we treat people, you know, in our own neighborhoods. Like, that's what it is to me, like, that you have to just keep every time you have a decision, a big decision or a little decision, pick what your vision is and try to keep getting there. Uh, So, yeah, go ahead. I would say my... The way I'd frame it is I think that the way you make room for everybody is you need to make sure there's an equal distribution of how unstable your housing is, which means in the long term it's going to be little. 
I think the problem is we tend to have different hierarchies of how stable is your housing? How much equity do you have in your community? And if you're a homeowner, you have really high. You know, you 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 are very stable and you can actually make money off of it. If you are a tenant in an unprotected place like my, you know, backyards around here, you are very unstable and you know that you are precarious and likely to get booted. If you are in somewhere in between, you're a tenant with higher protections, you have something slightly higher. And I think that the true, and I, I would call this radically liberal, is that there needs to be equality here. You know, everybody from a long-term person to someone who just came in yesterday has the same amount of equity in their community, the same amount of housing instability, and we all need to pull together this real solidarity. And I think that's the framing I think is necessary. So how do you propose matching people who have the same, who want the same outcome for a per, a certain physical space? So for instance, hotels, like let's, let's do a, a, a you know, a scenario like way at the edge so that we can really clarify our ideas. Hotels. Hotels. So say you have a living room. Say you have a place a person could sleep, right? You have it. I mean, already, what do we mean by have? Well, you we we haven't in our scenario, we haven't imagined that we don't have property rights because housing security is that's just another way of saying housing, right? But you know, you have some area and it's it's all set up for for human habitation. It's a place a person can safely and warmly and comfortably sleep. Um, and there's somebody that just wants to stay there one night because they're coming, whatever. They're tourists. Hotels. They're a tourist. Yeah, hotel. So, and you have a place where you would be perfectly happy for them to stay for one night. But you would not want them to stay there for a week or a year or 20 years. Why? Well, because you have some other plan for it. So this is municipally owned, or I'm, I'm the hotelier? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. Right. You might be a hotelier. When okay. I have this scenario, and you might, it might be one room, it might be fifty rooms, whatever. This thing exists, and you have some reason that your community is respecting your control over it, and you're like perfectly fine for a night. Um, and this other person only wants to stay one night, and they actually want to. Sure. How do, and so everybody's better off if you're able to match. And the person stays there, and then they leave, and everybody is happy. What we have now, obviously, are hotels. We have Airbnb. We have friend of friend. People find it in uh, those different ways. Um, In the future, we might have that, too. Uh, Then there's, like, slightly longer-term things, right? Like, students, they want to live near college, definitely for four years, but maybe they don't want to after that. So, so you're framing it as how do you deal with an allocation problem of where types of living situations should be matched up with people who want them? Yeah. I mean, the reality is, I mean, when I was younger, for instance, when I first moved out of my parents' house when I was 18, I didn't care about housing security. Um, I didn't need to live in any one place. I would sign a one-year lease and I'd stay there for a year and then I'd move somewhere else. Honestly, for variety. I was like interested in living in more than one neighborhood in Philadelphia. And if they had said after 10 months or after 15 months, like, well, you have to leave, then I would have been like, that's fine. If they had said after a week you have to leave, I would feel very annoyed because I had like spent all this effort, you know, moving. But the point is, is that there, whether you're a student or you're on vacation, or you, like I, you know, I was young, I was not yet a student, um, but first, you know what I mean? Like, there are actually people who have 
less of a need for housing security or a need for housing security for a finite amount of time. And as we do it now, the way that we match people is that, you know, people will say this apartment is for rent. And, you know, we live in a district in a um, in a city where you don't have rent control. <laughs> and so a lease means a certain thing. You sign the one year lease. That's all you're guaranteed to. Um but if you want to have an expectation of being able to stay there indefinitely, you have to own. And uh, and then you have places where you have rent control, in which case you have leases, like we talked about before, where you have this automatic option. So you actually get more housing security. And um, so the th- they're kind of like rough categories. It's like either a hotel, you know, or a lease or a, or ownership. Um And we might be better off with more different categories, but at least what we have now is that both parties know what they're getting out of it. So I do believe that housing security and stability should be available to everyone, no matter what their income is. And also, you should be able to live within about 15-minute commute of where you work, um, no matter what your job is. Um, and when we're thinking about how to set that world up, we also have to figure out how we're going to match people who want somewhere to stay for a short time or a medium length time and people who have somewhere for them to stay. Uh, and like I said before, right now we do it kind of like through the market. Well, I think it, it sounds what you're describing is in a lot of ways, I think pointing out what are, what are dangers of like a one size fits all? Like let's say like Hong Kong public housing. You know, it's like they build up the same exact kind of unit. Everyone lives in the same kind of space. I think it is a solution, but it does it does not comply with the fact that some people want different things. And I think it is good to say that it is bad for every single housing unit in the area to be the same. But I think you also it sounds like it's like a Kosian dream world where there is perfect bargaining. Everyone has you know complete bargaining power with each other. Everyone has kind of equal uh, standing and you kind of can just bargain, get what you want and leave. And I think there is kind of a danger. I hear people are market urbanists say it's like, oh, you know, if you talk about st- tenant protections, if they really wanted it, they would have just bargained for it. They would have when they got their lease, they say, I would like an option on stability in the long term, but obviously they didn't want to pay for it because they didn't want it. I think the truth is... Well, they can't pay for it. They can't pay for it. Yeah, of course. I mean, there's a ton of, like, economists or, you know, people who took uh, in an econ class who, for some reason, it's like they're immediately forget that people have different amounts of money. Yeah. So what happens now? Yes, a shorter-term lease is basically cheaper, um, more say, or less. It is kind of funny. If you talk about people who really kind of like the allocation parts of markets, they usually are brought up to the point like, oh, yes, it's good if everyone has the same amount of money. Yeah, you have to have the same amount of money in order for any of that to work. It's very funny. You talk about like, oh, public you know, public administration, there's dangers. All this stuff is dangerous. But you talk about like, oh, complete wealth distribution? Of course. You, need, of course. you, you of course need complete wealth distribution. That's why it's actually ridiculous to think that getting an economics education turns people into like raging libertarians because yeah. it's the opposite. A raging libertarian is someone who probably has like no education yeah. or like, yeah, read The Economist once. Just no, because if you're if you really get an economics education and really understand what you're learning, you get a good one. Yeah. Yeah. In order for any of that stuff to work, everybody has to have the same amount of money. Um, the other thing is with this the is e- why I say like neoliberalism is communism. 
Um, some neoliberals will tell you that. I don't know. Neoliberalism is very interesting. I would love to listen to a very smart podcast with a smart neoliberal. Well, that's um, not this one. Not this one, though. Uh, but anyway, but you actually highlighted one of the ways to solve the problem I'm talking about. One thing you could do is have everything be owned by the government because the government is a is indifferent. The government does not care whether you stay for a day or 10 years, really. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so that's so. Yeah. So that's one way uh, to do it. The only the matching thing only matters if you have private ownership. Yeah. And I, I think you talk about like what would like what would better liberalization mean in a lot of ways. You talk about like SROs are legal in SF, they're legal most places. They are a different kind of style of living that personally I'm now living in an ADU that's eighty six square feet. That I, is very small. And yeah. Uh, an SRO would actually be an upgrade for It would <laughs> totally be an upgrade. I yeah, I mean most places the minimum size is at least a hundred, if not one fifty or like two seventy or three hundred. Yeah. And I think this goes to maybe like what is one critique of Yimbyism uh, from, you know, kind of the anti-Yimby, anti-Dev left is saying uh, if you have complete liberalization, you will get what you got before zoning, which is slums. And Oh, my God. Do people really say that? Uh, yeah. I think there's one person actually who was like a Yimby or an article. It's like, you know what we need? We need more slums because slums work. Which is like, I see where you're coming from. That's a really dumb way to frame it. Because uh, like, it gives people options. If you want to live in a tiny little shack, you can. And now you have a place to live as opposed to being on the streets. Like, yes, no one should be homeless. Also, no one should live in a squalid, festering shack because they're poor. Uh, and I think this is the thing of saying, like, you know, you talk about Georgia's, they existed before zoning. Mm-hmm. They, they exist in a world with more slums. And what they wanted to do is make sure the people weren't living in awful slums and people had a higher quality of living. And I think the the really I, you see where they're coming from. The anti-dev, anti-YMB left would say what you need to do is guarantee everybody has a certain standard of living. And that's the baseline. And. You could say the baseline, if it's Tim Redman, is you have a nice suburban house with a yard, and that's the bare minimum. If you have less than that, you know, two-story houses, that makes me a little bit nervous. I don't know about that. Yeah, I actually think you really hit it on the head, is that you could probably get, like, really broad agreement that everybody should have a basic standard, but people's basic standards are really different, and that a lot of our opponents, I don't know whether they consider themselves leftists or not, um... Probably they're nostalgists. Nostalgists, yeah. I don't. There's definitely a lot of opposition that comes out of. I can't imagine living in this thing, so you can't do it either. I mean, God, <laughs> even my mom, she's killing me. Like, there was a proposal that actually is dead in the water for other reasons, but there was a proposal for 50 unit apartment building um, on her block which already has other apartment buildings. And her main thing is like, well, you know, the people that live there won't have parking and I would I would hate to live without a car. Yeah. And I'm just like, can't you see, like, you kind of lost the thread in the middle of the sentence. You don't have to live without a car. Like, she has a driveway. There no, are people like, who would love to live without a car and it's very hard not to, I know people, it's like, oh yeah, I got a free parking spot. It's like, I don't use it, I don't want it. And you just get it for free. Yeah, I mean, and also the idea that you can't raise kids in an apartment, you know, it's ridiculous. Um, so there is there's a real failure of imagination, a failure of, you know, the idea that like people might have different uh, wants and needs, different tastes. 
Um, and, and that does really interfere with housing production, unfortunately. And these rules are put into law. And who makes these laws? People who are comfortable, people yeah. who are the landed, usually yeah. around here, suburban homeowners. Yeah. And if you would want reform, chances are they just outweigh you, outweigh you and you, you leave. And then it's like, oh, yeah, my laws stick around. Yes. Um, that's a big problem with the way that – that's why this notion that state control – of zoning is undemocratic is completely wrong. Local control of zoning is undemocratic because if you, I mean, when you do zoning for a town, then the the zoning decisions made in that town affect all the towns around. But it's hard if you live in San Jose to say to Palo, you know, to come to Palo Alto and say, make different zoning decisions. Yeah. Um, that's why, that's one thing that's super cool about like all of these YIMBY groups is that all of us Yimby groups, like, it, it there's this phrase, think globally, act locally. And for us, it's more like think regionally, act locally. Um, but to have a network of people who all kind of want to see the same outcome, you know, where we can call somebody and say, hey, in Sunnyvale, you guys are about to make this decision. Like, can you make sure you go and, you know, talk to your city council? Um, but I do want to go. Well, and, and oh. let me just jump in here saying, mm-hmm. like, as someone in the Mid-Peninsula, the the kind of Yimby lobbyists in Sacramento, they're making changes that actually will yes. blow up my enemies here. Yes. As opposed to tenant solidarity, all the tenant groups and all these areas that are saying it's like, no, we can't blow up the Palo Alto homeowners. It's like you I as a tenant, I feel that we are not working together. And this is bothers me so much. I'm very interested in that, actually. Can you go on? I would say I mean, I just think in general, uh Tenants need to say, you know, if you help someone, let it be the least of us. Maybe that, you know, rolls in framing, a, a, right. a Christian framing. You know, it just, I think that, and I think, unfortunately, what you work for is to make yourself comfortable, which obviously fight for your own comfort, but then you kind of pull up the ladder. And I think in areas that have tenant protections, they stop fighting for areas without tenant protections. Yeah. And right. I, which is why I just I ignore SF and I try to say I work, need to work in my backyard for for tenants around here. Right. Yeah. So it is bizarre, actually, how focused. I mean, I guess I I kind of wish it was a call in show. I think that, you know, the reason is, is that tenant um, activists who have had success had success locally. Yeah. Because that's where the, you know, sort of by definition, that's like where the decisions were made. And so they feel like that's the only place uh, to have success. But I don't think that's true. I think there's a lot more potential for success in Sacramento than um, a lot of existing tenant activists. You can't work. I mean, you can't work with inside the system locally and make enough change. No, especially around here. Maybe in L.A., but certainly not in the mid peninsula with these cities. So actually exciting news from Sacramento. I mean, there was good and bad. The Ellis Act reforms, evidently, your table died for this year. Maybe they'll come back. Um, but the so you know that's too bad. Um, but uh, David Chu's statewide anti rent gouging bill sure move is moving forward. Yeah, which is from uh, from the mid peninsula perspective, that's a huge it's change. Huge because the reality is that like if I could pick one, I would pick, and I did uh, the the rent the anti rent gouging because that's something that as soon as the governor signs it. Every single tenant all over California gets a new protection that they didn't have before. And it's something that's like actually relevant, like for literally everybody. Whereas the Ellis Act reform, all it does is give your town 
more options. But if you live in a town, if you're like the, it's something like, well, whatever it is. There's only 20 towns out of 500. There are 500 cities in in California. Only about 20 of them have any rent control. So if you live in any one of those 480 towns without rent control, Ellis Act reforms not doing anything for you. Like your city has had the option for decades to enact rent control and never did it. So like if you don't have just cause, if you don't have anything, yeah, well, it's like you're not you're completely open. Yeah. Yeah. Although I will say, as far as like Georgist framing, the Ellis Act has been around for like 30 something years now. Mid-80s. No. So, well, oh, so in the mid 90s. I, I thought Ellis Act was like 85. No. That, that's Costa Hawkins. Oh, I'm sorry. You're totally right. Yeah. Ellis Act is like 83, 84, yeah. I think. And it was created because a landlord was saying, this hurts my ability as a landlord, a landowner, to speculate on and get my fair return of land holdings. And- Speculation and fair return are not the same thing. Well, this is the way it framed it, and this is why... This There's is a lot the... of people who don't know. They say the word speculation, they don't know what it is, and they don't know why it's bad. Let's talk about speculation. Yeah, okay. So I'll tell you why. Speculation, speculation, the word, I'm speculating. I don't know. I'm guessing. Essential to speculation is making a bet, making a decision, doing a thing, and not knowing how it's going to turn out. If you buy a piece of land... And then you build 30 apartments and then you rent them out. That is not speculation. You know, you knew that there was a strong market. You knew that there were people that needed housing. That's just development. Development's not speculation. You know, if you go to, yeah, if you like buy a bunch of pizza slices and then go to a game and sell them, not speculating. The market is there. You know you're going to make money. Speculating. If the only way you know you make money is if you're exploiting an arbitrage situation. Outside of that, there is a certain amount of uncertainty and risk. Okay. Yeah. But it's like not enough. Yes. You, nothing is. There are different levels of speculation. There's not. It's not enough to have it have its own, um, have its have its own name. Um, what speculation is, and this is even like what Henry George was writing about and talking about, and was a active practice in earlier days of capitalism, and I mean, still happens now, but like, I think was more forefront um, in American and European writers' minds uh, in the past, um, is this is this practice of, yeah, buying land and sitting on it because you think there's going to be some big change and there's no point in, in using it for anything productive right now because this big change is going to like completely wipe out whatever the plans are. So here's an example. Say you have a town and you want to buy a piece of land because you want to put a, um, a drugstore on it. You know, just sell general goods. So I, I, want a, I want a drugstore and it makes sense for me that it is rational for me to buy land and have the security that this offers. Well, yeah. What I, yeah. I mean, you want to buy this land. You want to be able to buy and sell, um, you know, like opiate derivatives because that's what they had for medicine back then or whatever. Um, and, and other sundries, goods and sundries that people might want. Um, you go to make an offer, but there's a rumor that they're going to build a railroad you know through your town yeah so whatever it is that you can pay for the land based on whatever income you can make from the store that store serving the three thousand people that already live there is just destroyed by the value of the land if the railroad goes through and so there's some speculator who comes in with tons of money 
and wildly outbids you, not because he has a plan for the land that takes into account what is actually going on today, but because he's making a bet, he is speculating that the railroad is going to come there. And if the railroad comes there, then his land really will be worth way more than what you can pay or what anybody could pay in that town right now. And his bet will pay off and he'll use it. He'll build a hotel or whatever. Um, But if the railroad doesn't come, then he goes bust. And in the meantime, in the six months or three years or five years, when the railroad like might be coming or maybe it won't or who knows, or maybe they're going to change it all that time, He's not doing anything with the land because he's not buying it to use it today like you are. So that's why people hate speculators yeah. because they're like, I'm trying to use this land to to uh, solve a community need today. And this is happening around here. Cruise up and down El Camino. There's like a, the Chevys went out of business five years ago. There's like next to it. No, this, this is why Georgists are such. The Chevys is not not being developed because somebody thinks some great thing is going to happen in the future. The great thing is happening right now. Housing is extremely expensive right now. They can't develop that because the neighbors suck because <laughs> it's illegal. But there are two things here. One is. One is the right time to try to push it through the permitting. It's in the future. And there is a privilege. The right time is in the future because it's illegal today. Yes, I understand, but there are multiple kinds of privilege. It's land ownership itself is not a privilege. The fact that you can buy and sell per like permitting you know, uh, you know, permits to build, there is actually an ownership in this completely fake government scarcity. And I can say, oh, yeah, I got this permit. Here it is. Here's money. Let's trade it. This is something that doesn't actually exist. Nothing was produced to make this permit. It is just people who are actually, uh, you know, rent seeking in a certain sense. Who's rent seeking in uh, this scenario? Uh, in the person who is trying to. Well, let me, let me try to frame this. See, no, the rent. If there's rent seeking in this situation, it's like the neighbors that are blocking the new development because they don't want more traffic. Well, I think the problem is I'm saying rent seeking. Rent. It's not really rent seeking as much as what is economic rent. Economic rent is when you have something with value that actually does not deliver production uh, commensurate with the value it it creates. And if you talk about like land a uh, land deed, a land deed is pure rent insofar as it's a completely made up government fiction that you can buy and trade, but it actually doesn't put anything into production. It's the same land there at the beginning, same land there at the end. And if you talk about permitting, it's the same kind of thing. You could build something, but just it's it's this fictional right to say you can build. Um, no. Well, the answer to that, the what it does is it gives you security. You know what I mean? It gives you the... Yeah, it gives you the security you need to make an investment. Yeah. And that's the same as a lease. I mean, okay, so say in some sense, I guess there's – well, I don't really know. You would have to like – like I said, you have to look at the history of any given lot. And like I've been around the block enough to know that like a lot of places that look like nothing is going on, actually they're in the middle of like a three-year battle with the city to build whatever they're zoned for. Um, there... And I definitely agree. That is one of the factors that is going on here. And I yeah. think they just – they compound. And I think they're both – an issue at play. And what are you trying to do is you're trying to buy low, sell high later, and the permitting is part of it. You might be trying to buy low, sell high. You might be trying to, like, buy, well, low. Everybody wants to buy low. And then develop and make money. I mean, selling, selling might not be actually part of people's plans. 
Well, okay, so here, going back to speculation, here is the thing. Speculation, I would say, is not bad in general. Speculation... I think it's bad in general. I would say speculation is just, it is it is something you try to control, and you want to create markets in order to drive speculation towards good outcomes and not bad outcomes. What is a good outcome? A good outcome is when you have competitive markets, everybody makes zero, like next to zero profit, there is zero waste, there is high efficiency. If you talk about who is making toothpicks today who's making widgets, who's making all this garbage, that is a pretty efficient market and it would be dumb to throw a lot of money speculating in it because it's already fairly efficient. As opposed to what is the worst kind of speculation is when people throw a lot of money at stuff and nothing happens. Like Bitcoin is the worst kind of speculation because it's just, you you know a secret number and then it gets bid up to 20,000, goes down to 6,000. Like it's nothing is real there. It's just people betting on this completely fake thing. And I think that if you talk about land deeds, if you talk about zoning uh, rights, if you talk about permitting, these are all the worst kind of speculation because they don't actually create anything. You want to you want to put people say I'm going to speculate by building a building because then you have a building at the end. That's yeah, good. Yeah, that's not speculation. That's just development. Well, this is this is semantics. Okay, but semantics <laughs> are important. Like well, people I was... are really like speculation is bad. And when it gets lumped together with actual sure. productive development, then people get confused. And I see it all the time. Like people that are opposing, you know, opposing building more housing, they'll be like, yeah, they're like building a building and renting it out. Speculation. It's bad. Like, no, it's not. Well, I guess you might say investing. Would investing be a different word? Investing or developing. Those are the yeah. things that we want. Sure. I mean, I think we can agree. People use speculation as a shorthand for bad speculation. And I think we both agree bad speculation is bad. Bad speculation, indeed. It is bad. You heard it here last. <laughs> oh, here's a question for you. Uh, you talk about you know people speculating on land. Uh, one of a book I heard recommended through you, uh, Plunkett of Tammany Hall. Oh, yes. Everyone should read that. Put this thing on pause and read that book. It's, it's a very interesting book to learn about politics in the real world. And yes. uh, in the book, he talks about the joys of speculation. Uh, it is it's a system of he talks about if you know you're in Tammany Hall and they're going to you're they're going to uh, develop here. You should buy some land, make a little money. Right. And this is how this what this is what greases the wheels in politics. Yeah. I'm reading uh, the that power broker right now. Corruption. Every... That's corruption. That's a different a different a different on... word for politics. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, actually, that is something, though. I feel like it's when your ta- team is winning, you know, you're, it's justice or whatever. And when the other team's winning, corruption. Although there is also real corruption. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I would just say in, in no, there, is, there isn't a lot of ideology in, in Plunkett. No, I love it. Except he hates anarchists. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're, they're bad for business. Uh, I mean, he, and I think there's a question. What is the role of ideology in all this? Because I think myself, I consider myself an idealist. I think what really matters in the long term is having the right ideas. And I think a lot of what happens in politics across, it's just forming the right coalition and getting ahead. And what is it for? It's essentially for self-serving good in the people in that coalition. And if you need, do you need an idea? Either it is to serve you or, you know, you just need it to have the right branding or maybe you don't even need it. You know, it could just be Tammany Hall is mostly kind of a weird ethnic lines that decides if you're in Tammany or outside of it. And I guess the question is how important you think it is that the Yimby coalition has a firm ideology and how much is this just, you know, this is politics. You don't need ideology. Yeah, that's a good question. I, um, 
I do think so. I do think that the role of ideology is mostly social. You know, it's a way for people. You can like put a rose next to your or or an avocado <laughs> or like a dandelion or something, and or you could put them all, and then everyone gets angry at you right. because you're demeaning. <laughs> Um, right. You try to try to build bridges, but really everybody's just mad. Um, so no, it's definitely social. It's very motivating for some people. It's extremely motivating. Um, I personally, I think that, I mean, I'm just, I'm just as bad as anyone. Like you'll meet people and I like to, I like to believe about myself that I'm not very ideological. It's probably like always a lie. I think probably everybody is more than they realize. I mean, I would say I would give you the credit. I think that you are one of the most refreshingly non-ideological per- people, yes! which is, I think, a strength. <laughs> it is a strength and a weakness because yeah. I think the question is, where is the Yimby boat sailing? And I think you need ideology to answer that question. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think you're right. It is a weakness. It means it's one of the ways that it's a good thing that there's a lot of organizers because, um, be, because yeah, having having ideology, like I was saying, it is very motivational. Uh, I think that I would maybe vision is another is an overlapping idea. Um, Ryan Tanaka has been working on this Yimby Arts kind mm, of project, sure. Um, and I think that's something that is true about Yimby is that we haven't quite explored or exploited yet. Um, is that we you have you do have to have a shared vision for the future? You know, like what I was talking about before, like big cities. Places that anyone can come there, places where people, once you live there, you can stay. Yeah. I think that's an ideology. That's my ideology. And, like, and you know, when you're making these little decisions, you want to keep getting towards the future that you're envisioning. Um, Which and, is with more yeah. or less an urbanist vision. And, yeah. And part of that is it's not just urbanism because there's two questions here. Uh, urbanism and equity. You could have, theoretically— an incredibly equitable suburb. Everything is a strip mall. Everyone drives, but it is equitable as hell. And then you have like an urbanist place where no one can afford it except the elites. And the question is like, are would you prefer the equitable suburb over the the non equitable city? And I would say I kind of unasked the question. I tend to think that the equitable suburb is unsustainable. And you really cannot have what you want in urbanism unless you add equity to it. And what is this solution is Georgism is right there in the middle. And I think it is about how you make cities equitable and how you make them sustainable, how you finance them. And I think that any urbanist vision, a lot of people have just kind of started as an urbanist. They find out about Georgism and they really go all in, I think, for good reason. It's it's the skeleton key. I have a question. Um, what do Georgists say about wages? Uh, the entire book is, I mean, Georgists tend to frame their kind of own version of labor theory of value. Uh, everything is really about what goes to labor. The entire idea, if you think about monopoly, monopoly is Georgia's propaganda. Uh, and the, the 200 you pass with go is the wages you get for working on land. And the question of wages is you want to get your fair return. But if you work in the middle of nowhere, it's hard to get a fair return because you're in the middle of nowhere. It's not a very productive area. If you are landless in a city, your labor becomes much more valuable, but the landlord takes it all away from you. So Georgism is trying to say, how do you make sure labor in the most productive areas goes to the laborer and not the landlord? That's that's the overall answer. Okay, so it's pretty similar, honest, to the Marxist ideas. 
Marxist is just kind of like an incoherent uh, variant of George's. <laughs> I, mean, right, I don't remember that. He I'll says in the, he said this book. He says that you know it's you know call me a socialist if you want, call me an individualist if you want. You know it's I I just am believing what's right. Uh, you know the problem is socialism is that is practiced the Marxist sense insufficiently radical. That's his. That's his conclusion. Is that I've actually always wondered why? Because they the fascinating thing is that Marx and George were writing at the same time. Unfortunately, Marx was not translating the English for most of this time. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's yeah. So and so and at that time, I feel like they were equally popular. Uh, in America, George was like people say he was the third most famous American of his yeah. age behind Edison and Twain. Okay, but what you're saying is that that if if Marx had been translated into English, maybe he would have been more popular in the U.S.? Well, I think here— I think that's what you just said. Well, you've said in the past, <laughs> you've said in the past, what is a problem with Georgism? It's hard to sell people on it because it's confusing, it's abstruse, and what is a big red flag and the hammer and sickle and, you know, rise up and conquer? That's a very palatable, easy message to take. And I think in no certain way, if you're trying to get the normies to support you— you have a much higher chance to to Marx build the the normies than George build them. Yeah, I mean they did. Uh, so the other thing is too is that the the kind of the writing, the action, like a lot of Marxists' um, rhetoric is like your boss is stealing. So I think the big difference is like your boss is stealing your wages. Yeah, and also your landlord is stealing your rent. You know what yeah. I mean? That's like, a they secondary concern, but yeah, that comes in. And I guess I'm not sure. Like, George is definitely like, your landlord is stealing your rent. And your boss is stealing your rent because he's exploiting the fact everyone is desperate to be stable in a city. So because of that, you can drive wages low by bidding all these desperate people against each other. Yeah, right. So there's You don't have good leverage because in a great world, you could say, hey, you're trying to steal my, my wages- I'm going to quit my job. You know, and move. Yeah, I'm going to move or just I'm going to work for myself. I'm going to, you know, I'm working a co-op. You know, call me back when you have good wages because, you know, I got my own place. I'm stable. I belong in the city. I have necessities. I'm only going to work when I get a fair wage. As opposed to right now, people stick with jobs usually because the rent bill is going to come due no matter what. You know, now I'm thinking actually that like the the – the historical like win for Marxism might have actually just because Marx was in Europe and Henry George was in the U.S. Yeah, I think it's probably not wrong in a big sense. I think that's just it. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> figured it out. I just figured it out. <laughs> so you're, okay, so here's a question for you: the ideology. I mean, I think I just described. I think the Yimby movement is, for better or for worse, non-ideological as opposed to kind of the urbanist vision. The anti-development left, I think that the problem is it also needs a good ideology, and instead it gets maybe, I would say, it is still running with the Calvin Welch mindset. And I think the Calvin Welch mindset is a completely regressive dead end of an ideology that still is incredibly popular. Is, how, how true do you think that is? Yeah, I think that like the generalized anti-development kind of movement um is non-ideological um i think that it's like it runs on 
nostalgia and anxiety. Yeah. That's like the core. Like people have a strong feeling. They believe they're feeling. And then they backfill. Nostalgia with... for the comfortable, fear for the for the uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and then also, you know, for some places more than others, you you can throw in like a need for exclusivity. You know, so I th- somebody's like Palo Alto. I mean, a lot of people's self-esteem here, you know, they're, they're just their own self-love is like, I live in an exclusive place. You know, I live somewhere that other people can't live. Yeah. Um, whereas, but I mean, I'm telling you, like my mom, you know, she wants, she wants to oppose neighborhood, you know, uh, apartments too. Germantown, the, the place I grew up in is not exclusive. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. no part of her self-worth is based on like, I live somewhere that's inaccessible. Like our neighborhood's very accessible, but she still has found reason. You know, she's still just like emotionally attached. You to, don't like, have to be a monster to be against change. It's very natural. It's so, it's the most natural thing. Um, in the world. Anyway, so that's not ideological, but then they get to like, they're, you know, they sort of, mm, they get to like pick and choose and, and grab onto very fancy ideologies. Well, I think there's, yeah. (laughs) Like Marxism, honestly, you know, they'll be like, I don't want an apartment building because I'm nostalgic about my neighborhood and I don't want traffic. Oh, and also, Making money off housing is bad, actually, because yeah. of this book that, like, my kid read in college. So, you know, <laughs> you tell now you the, I have a real reason. The true no, strength of Marxism, the true strength of Marxism is you. it is so vague and kind of <sighs> weird and incoherent, you can make it say whatever you want it to say, which is amazingly strong. <laughs> you talk about, like, I was reading, like, Marxist ideologues would have this entire reason why Stalin believed one thing, and then later he changes his mind. They have an entire newly valid Marxist reading and says, oh, yeah, Stalin's now, yeah, this makes sense now. Because you can, it's, it's, I mean, everything from Thomas Lord uh, yeah. to, to, like, you, I, I don't think, I feel like George is actually gives me like a sensible ground. I can say, oh, I can actually think better because of this, <laughs> as opposed to, I think a lot of people, you find these like weird dead ends where you just kind of end up in whatever kind of small cult you end up in and people just kind of tell each other what this thing tells you to think. Yeah, I think that uh, there's a lot of, like I said before, believing believing what you feel um, yeah. and then finding a reason uh, later. Um, but I don't, so you bring up, this is one thing, like everything gets like very mashed together. Oh, so, absolutely. Everything's conflated. Yeah. Like there is, I, I don't want to like, there are real, sincere, thoughtful, um, you know, non-hypocritical, like, you know, uh, sort of leftists, social, um, I mean, reformers I, out I would, there. You, you find a tenant group, you're going to find 98% of the energy behind it is good people wanting good things. But I, I am outraged by the fact there are some people steering the boat that I think are really misleading them. And this is considered, some people say like, oh, you think they're sheep? And honestly, I mean, I think honestly, yeah, a few ideologues can, because most people don't spend all day thinking about ideology. I think that the politics is actually sort of the other way around. It's not that anybody's being misled. It's that the backbone of any successful 
political push, any if you see a policy that's really happening, it's because there are likely voters that believe in it and are in their self-interest. Yeah. And like in America, likely voters are generally homeowners. I mean, the struggle, the struggle. This is what drives me the most crazy about tenant advocates. Um, I mean, I am a tenant advocate, but like last generation's tenant advocates is that we have a big struggle, which is to get uh, tenants to vote. Yeah. Right. Renters don't vote that much. They move around a lot. They have higher non-ability to vote. If you are a a new immigrant, either documented or undocumented, you're more likely to be a renter than a homeowner. That's true. Right. And a lot of people don't realize that they can vote right away. I've had a lot of people say like, oh, I have to get my residency and then I can vote. I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, well, I have to live in California for a year before I can vote. That's ridiculous. It's completely not true. It's more of a pain. I got evicted twice in the last three years and you have to get your registration. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the question is, how are we going to organize all these people that aren't that likely to vote? They're transients. Right. What are you going to do when when your constituency is transient? It's like so hard to organize them. It's so hard to build power. Yeah. And so step one, I feel like, is to not alienate part any part of them to make sure that we're unified, that we're working together. We're on the same page um, because on the other side are homeowners and they love voting. They never move. You know, they're very intense about their neighborhoods. They feel very strongly. And their core ideology is livable California, which is honestly a horrific mindset. Yeah, they're total nativists. Um, So but what wound up happening is that a the tenant organized like last generation's tenant organizers, they created a um, an alliance with homeowners. So if you live in a neighborhood, say you live in a neighborhood, and it's like mostly single family homes, but there's a couple small apartment buildings and the apartment buildings are like have gotten sort of old and shabby. um, And so they're affordable and uh, you get there's a lot more jobs downtown. And so a developer is like, ooh, there's a need for housing. I'm going to like chances are most parts of California, most parts of the country, if someone's building a new apartment building, they are probably tearing down an existing apartment building because (laughs) Because you're not tearing down single family homes. You're not tearing down single family homes. Right. Because what are you going to do? You're going to zone. You're going to build apartment buildings in the place that's zoned for apartment buildings. This is why the mission is rightly afraid of change, because they have always been the only like the place that the that they lack political power and they get bullied yes and no in in san francisco you can't tear down existing housing well that's because they fought for For, right because they fought for it yes Yes. (laughs) so right so before they had a rule like that they needed a rule like that and and before they had rent control they needed rent control and so if you live in a neighborhood and like, you know, say your apartment building has whatever, uh, 50 people living there, probably most of those people are like, well, I'm a renter anyway. I don't really get involved in local politics. I was planning on moving or I never expected to be able to stay. But maybe 10 percent of the people that live there are like, no, like I don't have anywhere else to go. I'm fighting. And then 100 percent of the homeowners are like, we don't want a new apartment building. Screw that. We like our neighborhood the way it is. Yeah. And so then you have this alliance and it works because people listen to the homeowners and they care about them. Yeah. So that's why I think it's like, it's not like the 
you know, Calvin Welch is like fooling anybody. Everybody knows what's going on. He's made a very like the Tim Redman type of comfortable homeowners who are nostalgic, basically, very happily fit in line with the Calvin Welch uh, tenant advocacy. Yeah, but ten- Calvin Welch is just another like is just another Tim Redmond. They're yeah. both just homeowners. And so what they get, they get to, like, preserve their neighborhood the way it was. It looks cute, you know, on their end. That's something that they want anyway. They also get to have, a, uh, like, social reformer, social justice ideology to dress it up with. Yeah, people want to sleep well and know they're a good person. So you want to make sure you sell your ideology. Ideology is about knowing your self-interest is actually makes you a good person. Yeah, and so you can tell, though. So before there were demolition controls, before there was rent control, they really were all swimming in the same direction. And Calvin Welch could tell himself he's a good person because I'm helping renters. And and they were. And then they won. And they did it. And yeah. they got the demolition controls. You can't tear down you know, existing housing to build new housing. So let's talk about, like, that's paradigm one, which is what is the coalition? It is anti-change because change is scary. And it is scary. If you were like the like a tenant through urban renewal projects, you were getting screwed over. And they were absolutely- If you were a homeowner during urban renewal, you were getting screwed over. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's <laughs> you get doubly screwed over because you don't get the same kind of uh, taking uh, if you're a- uh, if you're just a tenant. But I mean, a lot of the, the politically not powerful get screwed over in, in urban rural projects. So there became a coalition for being anti-change. And I think that's not wrong. And what is a very solid way that people see the same way there? It's tenants who don't want change because change means instability and homeowners who aren't really as precarious, but tend to be more nostalgic. Yes. And so that was all good. And then they won. And then phase two. What is the game plan? (laughs) Phase two. Right. What is the game plan? And so we had a a couple decades of just keeping on the same thing, you know, so now nobody can tear down. They uh, they did the demolition controls. They rezoned places that previously were not allowed to be housing and they rezoned it to be uh, multifamily housing. Um. So instead of being instead of kind of closing that chapter, realizing that they changed reality, making a new plan based on the new reality, um, they it kind of metastasized. And phase two is if somebody proposes building an apartment building on, you know, some dead retail or a, a parking lot, just fighting that also and making you're no co- no difference between and this is like in the mission for instance the same rhetoric the rhetoric against tearing down a Walgreens to build an apartment building is the same rhetoric as if they were tearing down an apartment building to build an apartment building yeah. and it one it's just wrong like it's literally not true and i think it's harmful obviously i think it's harmful to tenant interests long term, because when you have a shortage, people are get screwed. But is it part of what is the stable equilibrium in the Calvin Welch mindset is you need to fight everything because all change is threatening. Uh, Do you watch the Calvin Welch video? There's like yeah. two of them posting uh, 48 Hills. I was watching it just yesterday. Uh, and like he says, like, OK, you know, there was a problem. We dealt with it. We downzoned everything. We preserved everyone in their place. Nothing can change now. And the end, now it's a great city, and now there's gentrification. Now it's a new battle. You know, it's we did such a great job, now people are trying to invade. And, like, it's like there's no game plan there. Like, what is next for you? You can't just say you stop change, you won, 
and this is the end. It's obviously not the end. And I think that's what I think there is a lot of room on the true equity advocates on the left to say, what is what do we want that involves change? Because I think anyone who's serious about equity advocates says we need change, not just an absence of change. Yeah. I mean, it only takes 24 hours for today to become yesterday. Yeah. Like it happens whether you want it or not. And yeah, you have to have a new plan. Um, but the thing is about the homeowners is that they're a very stable base. Oh, you know, yeah. like yeah. if I I can totally see like it's really it's a leap into the unknown, you know, to the idea. I mean, the thing that I'm proposing, which is legitimately terrifying, is cut your ties with homeowners. Right. Like those guys have been voting with you forever. Tell them to go f- themselves. Sorry. <laughs> it's all. Yeah, it's fine. And, you know, because we're going to build real tenant power across all all like demographics, you know, all classes of tenant. Yeah. Let's do that. And uh, there are a lot of people that are like just not having it. I mean, on the one hand, you have actual homeowners that just uh, don't agree with what we want to do. And then on the other hand, like whether it's, you know, articulated or just thought, um, you have tenant organizers that are like, well, this power dynamic has been actually pretty stable. You know, homeowners have been coming out to continue to protect rent control and to continue to protect demolition controls. If you give them up, you have no power. That's the fear. I mean, I actually, obviously, I think that we can potentially have a broad-based tenant movement where, like, high-income tenants and low-income tenants both consider themselves to be tenants. Yeah. Well, I think what you're describing there, that is a Georgist class analysis. See, let's do it. <laughs> well, so, uh, okay. But it's also a Marxist class analysis. Like, any idiot can be like, oh, there's two classes people that own something and people that don't. I don't, I think that's too basic to just be attached to one. Sure. But, I mean, I think, but if you're talking landed versus landless, that's the Georgist. You always have that, as opposed to you got this defense of Prop 13 by East Bay DSA who says, like, actually, you know, Marx would say that if you own a $2 million house, that's not really wealth. That's, that's ridiculous. Marx would definitely call that wealth. Who knows what he'd say? He it's would his... say that that's stupid. <laughs> yeah. He would write a whole screed about it in German. Yeah. Wait, and I think this is, I mean, I definitely agree. I think the, the good core of a pro-change left movement is, and I think it's funny to laugh at them, the FIMBY movement because it is, it, it becomes obviously like, oh, it's like, oh, no, wait, I'm trying. You know, I'm wishing very hard for public housing. But I think if it becomes a real thing, that is actually a good direction. And what does it mean? It almost necessarily means land reform. It means a lot of things will change. And this is not very flattering. I mean, Tim Redman might say he wants public housing everywhere, but he also says, like, oh, no, this is going to hurt single-family homeowners. This is going to destroy single-family neighborhoods. Yeah, he doesn't want public housing everywhere because he doesn't want housing everywhere. You can tell because we don't have it. You know, there's been nothing's been in the way of Calvin Welch and Tim Redman. You know, once they got all those tenant reforms, if they were real leftists, they would have been like, great, we have demolition controls. We have rent control. Step three, public agencies are going to be building publicly owned high rises all across the city. So you might be thinking in your mind, 
public housing didn't work. No, public housing worked fine until the federal government started starving it. Like nothing works if you don't fund it. But public housing can work fine and did, especially when it was actually workforce housing. This is enough. This is there's a number of things with FIMBY's like it's great. If it's a real thing, it's obviously great. And if it's just like a fake, like a lot of FIMBY's actually don't want affordable housing. They don't want public housing. They're just rent control folks. Like that's not really that's not change that's okay yeah Yeah. i mean it's misleading anyway but if you really have public housing um we can build mixed income public housing we can build public housing with a range of incomes so that we don't have to rely on the federal government um there's definitely a lot of fimby people who don't realize that like you could have public housing that makes money. They think the whole point of it is that it has to be just for low-income people. But to be frank, like if we're serious about building a functional, sustainable, long-term program where the land is owned by some part of the local government and the rents from that land go to the public good, there have to be rents from that land. And which means that you're going to have market rate, you know, rents in there. If not the whole thing, then at least part of it. Um, that's something that's super exciting that we were in a long car drive on the way home uh, from Sacramento. And I was like, listen to this, guys. This is my idea. And uh, the people in the car were like, you know, you've completely gone off the deep end. But that I would like to see um, all of the different parts of the city governments looking at their surplus land and deciding to develop it in ways that either are revenue neutral, you know, that provide housing for the community or for their own workers, um, but doesn't need subsidy, or revenue positive. So that, like, if you're the library, you have a piece of land, and, you know, it's one-story library, why not build another 12 stories Yeah, and, and rent it out? <laughs> like, and then you have money for the library. Like, how great would that be? Um, the, the parks department, you know, so what we did before is we had all the housing just in the public housing agency. Uh, but the government is actually a network of organizations and each of those organizations owns land and each of those organizations really should be looking at the land that they own. And what I actually believe is that if we started doing that, the publicly, the public ownership would, it would, I, I think that it would crowd out private ownership in the long run. I, it's, I think. I mean, what you're describing there is not very different than like what the People's Pro- Policy Project, the Peter Gowan paper, is about revenue neutral uh, social housing built on public lands. It could I know. happen. It could I talked happen. I to Matt Brunig about it. I was like, Matt, yeah. let's like do a thing. And yeah. he was like, at first he was like, oh, yeah. And then he was like, oh, no, some friends of mine that are in SFDSA were like, don't work with Sonia. She sucks. And he's like, I don't know. You know, <laughs> I don't want to have any controversy. So forget it. So then he worked on that thing by himself, which is a shame. Yeah. I mean, I guess the question is like, what is... I mean, I I want to be friends with everybody because I feel I want to work in the idea, idea space, and I don't really want high school cliques. And unfortunately, I feel like that is in no small part what's happening. Yeah, I think there's. I mean, I don't know. There's no way around high school cliques. Probably, it's very tragic. I mean, I think that's what Tammany Hall is. It's just a very powerful high school clique in a lot of ways. Tammany Hall was like a way for immigrants to achieve a middle class life. Yeah, I mean, they Which got a better lot better than a high school click. It's like a high school click lets all the nerds and geeks in and like lets them actually be cool with them. Mm. 
<laughs> that's my that's my class analysis. Okay. So I guess my question is, uh, I mean, in the long term, I mean, we're talking about kind of what is the more or less critique of the Yimby group is that they're all libertarians who want in- extreme inequality between people, and I mean, in this thing today, we talk about. 100% wealth redistribution. Everyone has the same amount of wealth. We talked about, you know, increasing public land ownership. I mean, it's, I don't really understand the entire idea when when the group started. It's like, all people need to agree on, there needs to be more housing. Yes. We're going to disagree. Is that a sustainable coalition or is the fact that it lacks ideology a weakness? I mean, that's a definite interesting question. I think the stuff that you were talking about, the straw men, um, those are slanders. Those are just straight up slanders and libels put together by people who have no answer for the fundamental question. You know, the fundamental question is we have several big cities that are highly productive. A lot of people want to live there. What do you what's the plan? You yeah. know, we have to build more housing. San Francisco, the Bay Area has to have at least twice as many housing units, big and small, varied different places fine we just need more and there are people that don't agree with that and they don't have like the problem is is that every now and then you'll hear one articulate a real answer and they'll say well their answer is people shouldn't move here you know i don't care that you think your life is going to be better in the bay area you should stay where you are we should have internal passports. You know, you shouldn't be able to move. Now, fortunately, most people realize that that is very not compelling. It's like totally un-American. Um, and it's just not compelling. Like people want to be able to move where they want to move. Um, you and- get some people who get in a weird impasse who says like, yeah, I support, you know, undocumented immigrants in my area, uh, but I hate transplants. <laughs> oh, my God. I had the craziest. I was in St. Louis Obispo and there was an anti, there was an SB... 50 uh, protest and this woman was like it's like the right to choose neighborhoods should be able to choose you know what kind of neighborhood it is and like this guy you know Sam Hinder organized protest like yeah nodding nodding and I was like well I think people should be able to choose where they want to live yeah and he was like she was just like ugh and like he was like uh maybe and you could see that he was just like oh crap choosing where you want to live like because he had bought into this like right to choose thing you know like well right to choose means right to move around anyway um so yes you have somebody like that guy that's like well maybe and so he has this like clash of ideas in his head it's really hard to get behind the idea that one you know you live in a job rich desirable place you don't want your neighborhood to to change but also it's really hard to say to people you might you know you can't live here because i just don't want you to move and so then they just make up all these lies and they're like oh yimbies are libertarians like are there libertarians in yimby sure but that doesn't mean like we're all libertarians and a lot of libertarians are like sex work should be legal you know a lot of people are in the libertarian movement because they want to make drugs you know legal they're not all necessarily just free marketers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the question is, does it mean like ANCAP or does it mean like Peter Kropotkin or something like that? You know, it's just, it's... A lot of people who call themselves libertarians also are actually just racists and they're not real libertarians. <laughs> they're just Republicans. Yeah, they're yeah. yeah, they're just like rabid, insane Republicans. So all that stuff is slanders and lies. Like, um, So, but your real question was, 
you know, what about an ideology? And I think that we are like bit by bit kind of groping towards an ideology. Um, I like being non-ideological because it's like a way to have a, you know, a big tent. Like a lot of people can come in and, you know, you you pick a practical outcome and then people who have different reasons to want that outcome can all come together. Um but yeah, in the long term, it's like more animating. And I think that what the ideology is, it has to do with what I was just talking about, which is access to opportunity, integration, the, you know, creating the social conditions that allow people to fully self-actualize. One of the great things about dense living, which we haven't talked about yet, I mean, on the one hand, obviously, it's environmentally sound, but it also means that if you're part of a minority, any type of minority whether it's a religious or a cultural minority, or just you have some weird minority interests. You know, you're like into playing. You're like one of those people that like plays antique instruments. You like play, you know, 12th century yeah. folk songs. If you live in a city, you're so much more likely to be able to find people like you because there's many, many people around you. Um, and definitely that's true of, you know, minority religions and ethnicities. Like there's... It's just, and that's it's part of the easier. reason I feel like equitable suburbs are never going to work because they are almost, by definition, conformist, soul deadening structures where no one can really explore their real selves. Yeah, I mean, you have to, in order to love a suburb, a truly low density place, um, you ha- you have to just like be like lucky, and everyone around you is like you. That's why suburbs suburbs are good. Suburbs are a good place to move to. But they're not a good place to grow up in Hmm. because when you if you move there, you know what you're getting. You're like, I want to go to this. I mean, there are suburbs that are there are suburbs that are different from each other. You know, you can kind of pick. You're like, ooh, this suburb is full of patriotic veterans and this suburb is, you know, some other thing. Fine. You pick it. You move to there. Uh, But yeah, but you don't want to grow up there because then you're born and you might not be like your parents or like your community. And you see that. Right. Adults likes there are adults that like suburbs. They move there on purpose, and it's kids who hate the suburbs and <laughs> write rock songs about how bad they are. It is. I feel like the people who are most anti-urbanist they all live in the city and enjoy it, but they just feel like it's like, oh look, like who would want this, you know? But they obviously would never move to the suburbs, but they just want to bash it. Mm, I think actual effective anti-urbanists are in the suburbs. Well, there's two kinds. There's yeah. the people who like the city or in the city and just hate the suburb, the, hate the urbanists because they're all libertarians. And then there are the actual libertarians living in Marin County mm-hmm. who want to build compounds and like live in their own suburban world because they love it. Uh, so here is my closing statement of sorts about Georgism uh, and why it matters. I think that the anti-development left has a has a, a danger of viewing everything as zero sum. You know, there is only winners and losers. We have a certain amount of stuff. It's all fighting over it. And then there is, I think, the danger of the mindset of everything is positive sum. We just need to grow the pie and there will be plentiful amounts for everyone no matter what. I think the world we live in has a mixture of both. There is both zero sum outcomes and positive sum outcomes. And we, I think, to make the cities open to everybody we're going to need both of them yeah sure okay so uh so does this mean georgism uh, won and it's now the the top ideology <laughs> yeah georgism top ideology Great. i don't know you're gonna have to you're gonna have to come on come on the slack and fight it out okay sorry okay. uh do you have a closing statement or any other final thoughts um no thanks for having me i always enjoy coming to stanford 
coming down to the Mid Peninsula, it's just a joy all over. Wait, I do want to tell everybody that I found parking very easily. Well, of course you did. It's, <laughs> in this place, it's Stanford at least tries to uh, to allocate in, in the sane way. On a weekday, you'll have more trouble, but it's a weekend. Yeah, well, maybe once we're successful, parking will be harder. But also, once we're successful, I won't have had to drive. Nice, nice. Well, thanks for coming down. Yeah, thank you. This has been the great Georgism versus Yimbyism debate with Sonia Trous. Realized a lot we did not talk about. We did not talk about pricing, supply and demand versus the law of rent. Whoops. In the meantime, previous episodes of the show can be found at the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of Casey Shiro Stanford. <laughs>